As you know, this is the second Sunday of Advent. This Advent season, we decided to look particularly at the Gospel of Luke's account of Jesus' birth. That's what we've been doing over the last three weeks. Luke chapter 1, he sets uh, the opening, uh, it sort of reads almost like the opening to a movie in some respects that flashes from one scene and then to another scene and then back again to the characters from the first scene. So if you read Luke chapter 1, you can kind of see this back and forth. In scene 1, which we looked at verses 5 through 25, what we read there is the account of Gabriel appearing to an aged priest named Zechariah. The angel proclaims that his wife is going to give birth to a son who will prepare the way for the Messiah. Zechariah is a good guy, is a good man, but he doubts the angel's prophecy because his wife Elizabeth is past what most people would have considered to be childbearing years, and as a result of his doubt, Zechariah is struck dumb until John's birth. Then we switch to scene two. Now, in this next act, the angel Gabriel appears to a teenage girl from Nazareth, um, or as um, Rob talked to us a little bit, it would be a little bit like her being from Tai Tai, South Georgia. But he proclaims to her that she will give birth to the Messiah, despite the fact that she's not even married, has not known a man. Mary's ultimate response was to surrender to God's plan for her life. And again, Rob covered that story two weeks ago. Last week, we read Luke chapter 1, verses 36 through 56, in which Mary visited Elizabeth to confirm Gabriel's prophecy about Mary and Elizabeth. When Mary arrived, Elizabeth exclaimed, "'Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me?' Mary then proclaimed what theologians have termed the Magnificat, or Mary's song, in which she proclaims, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Today we find ourselves in what would be considered scene four. In this scene, Elizabeth gives birth to their son. They name him John, and Zechariah utters a prophecy regarding the identity of their child. Let's take a look. Now, this is going to be a long chunk of Scripture. It's verses 57 through 80. And so bear with me, and I listen to it as if it's like uh, reading a story. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah, but his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. This was because in verse 13, the angel Gabriel had said, you're going to call him John. Verse 61, they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened, and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all of these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he has said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, 
the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this narrative, this story of the angel appearing to the various people in this great play, Father, of telling them that their prayers have been answered, of reminding them that you have been watching over them, caring for them, that you're coming to rescue them through the birth of your son Jesus. Father, I pray that all of those truths that were true uh, for the people of Israel 2,000 years ago, that they would be true for us today, Father, that we would find our hope in you, our good Father, and in your son Jesus, our Savior. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. In uh, football, you have any number of sort of glamour positions. Sometimes these are called the skill positions. Uh, quarterback, wide receiver, and running back specifically are some of those skill or glamour positions. And most of us in the room, even those of us who don't know very much about football, can probably tell you some of the more famous athletes from these positions. Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, Patrick Mahomes, Emmett Smith, Jim Brown, Jerry Rice, Randy Moss. That's just to name a few of those people that most of us have probably heard about. My guess is, however, that very few of us in the room who are non-football fans could name a single offensive lineman. Most of us would struggle with that. Offensive linemen are these guys that create a wall in front of the quarterback and in front of the running backs. They uh, basically, they pave the way and they usually look something like these guys. This guy's name is Chance Warmack. He played in the national championship several years ago. And I remember loving him because he couldn't get his shirt over his belly. And then offensive linemen also look something like this, these two guys right here. Now, again, and the, the whole point is to say this, usually offensive linemen, they just look different than other players. I have a friend who played in the NFL uh, for a little while, and I asked him, I said, how can you tell the difference between a defensive lineman and an offensive lineman? He goes, oh, you know, <laughs> you can tell. And he went on to describe some of that. Anyway, they're usually pretty tall. They've got long arms. They often have a pretty good gut that they're, pr they're proud of. They're usually so big that they make their helmets look small. Their jerseys often look too tight, and often their pants look a little bit too loose. But their job, however, is vital to the success of those skill players I mentioned earlier. Quarterbacks depend upon these big guys to keep the other team away until they can throw the ball or hand it off. Similarly, running backs need these giants to pave the way for them to run past the line of scrimmage. In the same way that football needs offensive linemen to prepare the way for other players in order for the team to flourish, so too our human hearts need someone to prepare the way as well. That's what John the Baptist did for Jesus, and it's actually what this Advent season does for us as well. Let's see how this theme of preparing the way plays out for us in the passage of Scripture that we just read. First point is this, that Advent prepares our hearts by confronting our doubt. So Advent prepares our hearts by confronting our doubt. Get verses 11 through 13 and then 17 and 18. Kind of jumping back to that first scene we mentioned earlier. 
Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, that is Zechariah, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, that is the angel, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Verse 17, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. He expressed doubt. Doubt seems to be an inextricable aspect of our humanity. It seems to be inseparable from the human experience. Our most common questions as humans stem from doubt. Do I have what it takes? Am I enough? Or the exact opposite, am I enough? If I allow anyone to see the real me, will I be rejected? Will I be abandoned? These are very legitimate questions that really at one level or another all of us have. We see doubt in the very first pages of Scripture. Satan lures Eve away from God by tempting her to doubt God's goodness towards her. Just a few chapters later, we see Abraham doubting God's providence when he lies in order to try to protect his family. And then several chapters after that, we see a barren Sarah. She laughs when she hears the prophecy that she will bear a child in her old age. Later, Jacob doubts God's promises to him. He takes matters into his own hands, and he steals the birthright by deceiving his father. Gideon doubts God's ability to use him. Elijah doubts God's plan to rescue the faithful of Israel. The list goes on and on and on. Our doubts are constant. It's not only part of the Old Testament. Doubt is also part of the New Testament. It's littered throughout the New Testament, in fact. Most of us know about the man that we often call Doubting Thomas, who Jesus invited to be one of his 12 disciples. Upon hearing of Jesus coming from this place called Nazareth, Nathanael snarkily asked Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? When Jesus commanded his disciples to feed the crowd of 5,000, the disciple named Andrew is skeptical, and he responds this way. He says, there's a boy here who has five loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many. And of course, when Peter is invited by Jesus to walk upon the water, he begins to sink when he takes his eyes off of Jesus and looks instead at the wind and the waves. Doubting God's existence, doubting His ability, doubting His goodness seem to be inseparable on, be- on part of the human experience. And in this particular story, the angel tells Zechariah, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. But instead of jumping for joy that his prayer has been answered, Zechariah responds with incredulity that God has actually heard, that he has shown up. We shouldn't really be surprised when we see this old priest Zechariah doubting the angel's message, and we shouldn't be surprised at our own doubts either. After his wife died, C.S. Lewis wrote a powerful book entitled A Grief Observed. I highly recommend it for anyone. And in it, he wrote the following quote. He said, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It's easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you're merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. 
wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? This story of John the Baptist, as well as this entire Christmas season, which we call Advent, is an invitation for us to remember the coming of Jesus. This entire season and this story confront our doubts. We doubt that God loves us, but John 3.16 is a reminder of God's love. We doubt that God cares about us and our plight, but we're reminded that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We doubt that God is listening, that He hears our cries, that He hears our half-uttered prayers. But don't forget Gabriel's proclamation to Zechariah, where he says, don't be afraid, your prayer has been heard. We doubt that God can actually save us from the chaos that surrounds us, but we need to remember Jesus' reaction to Peter's fear and doubt in the midst of the storm. In Matthew 14, we read that Peter was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me, and listen to Jesus' response despite Peter's doubt. It says, Jesus immediately reached out His hand and took hold of Him. And so, the Christmas story, this season of Advent, is an invitation for us to be confronted by our very real and very legitimate doubts, but it's an invitation to take those doubts to Jesus. There is more to this story, however. Let's continue. The second thing we see here is that Advent prepares our hearts by reminding us of our need, maybe our our deeper needs. Verses 76 through 79 say this, "'And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for Him, to give His people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death,' to guide our feet into the path of peace. One of my favorite axioms is the problem is not the problem. The problem is not the problem. It means that often the presenting issue in a relationship, in a business, in a conundrum, it's often not actually the primary issue. I'll often sit in marriage counseling situation. I'll be listening to some husband and wife as they talk about their struggle, and one spouse will be in the process of outlining some issue that is damaging their relationship. And I'll realize all of a sudden that the presenting issue, while real and while harmful, often isn't the actual issue at all. The real issue is deeper down. It's further back. It's oftentimes the product of a wound, which often occurred long before the husband and the wife even met. Albert Einstein once said, if I were given one hour to save the planet, I would spend 59 minutes defining the problem and one minute resolving it. It's a good quote. I think his inclination is correct. Often our diagnosis of a problem is incorrect, and therefore our response will be incorrect as well. When Jesus arrived 2,000 years ago, the Israelites mostly believed that their biggest problem was living under and occupying Roman military presence. That is what most of them thought the problem was. And while that was a real issue, it wasn't the deeper issue. The actual issue was deeper down and farther back, and it's what we often call sin. The Bible uses all sorts of metaphors to describe sin. It speaks of corruption. It speaks of pollution. The Bible talks about brokenness. It talks about rebellion. It talks about missing the mark, sometimes on purpose, but sometimes just accidentally. 
The Bible speaks about all sorts of things. It talks about using uh, the metaphor of stepping over boundary lines. In Romans 1, Paul speaks of sin as looking to some good, God-given, and created thing for our ultimate security, our ultimate identity, instead of looking to the Creator Himself. And then the Bible talks about the impact of of all of those things we just talked about of, of sin. The Bible talks about slavery, and in our modern time, we might think about that as addiction. It talks about psychological, physiological, relational, and spiritual chaos as a result of sin. It talks about how the ultimate result of sin is finally isolation, that those people who give themselves into these things ultimately end up alone, and you don't have to think very hard to see exactly how that has played out in our own lives and in the lives of those that we love. And so once we think about sin in all of those terms, you can quickly see that sin is actually the real issue for everyone in one way or another. Each of those sins in one way or another grows out of a failure ultimately to believe that God is good and that He loves us, that He wants what's best for us. Jesus' arrival into human history is a resounding countermeasure at our attempts of avoiding God and of self-justification or self-salvation. Ultimately, in this passage, Zechariah reminds us of our deepest need, forgiveness, for our relationship with God to be made right. Listen to verses 76 and 77. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for Him, that is Jesus, to give His people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And so this Advent season is a reminder of our need, specifically our need of forgiveness from God. Most of us at one certain point become aware that if we're in a relationship of any depth with somebody that we're going to fail them and they're going to fail us over and over and over again. That's just the reality of broken relationships. We may snap at them when we're feeling particularly thin, and what occurs when that happens is that some amount of relational damage is done. Sometimes somebody's not there for us when we most need them. Again, the result is an inevitable loss of intimacy. In a moment of fear or selfishness, we may actually betray a friend's trust in order to try to save ourselves. And again, when that betrayal occurs, real damage is done. In order for trust and intimacy to be restored in those relationships, forgiveness is required. Advent is a reminder to us that God knows our sin and that He offers us forgiveness willingly despite the cost. Again, that's precisely why Jesus came. It's precisely what we're remembering this Advent season. So, the season of Advent is a confrontation of our doubt. It's also a reminder of our need. And then finally, Advent prepares our hearts by pointing us to Jesus. I'm going to read verses 16 and 17 and verse 76. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, that is, to prepare people for Jesus' arrival. And then in verse 76, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for Him. All of this is pointing us to Jesus. Now, it seems almost silly in the middle of the Christmas season to make the argument 
that the Christmas season or Advent season points us to Jesus. But maybe it's not that silly. Just last week, I watched a show about nothing. Now, that was not Seinfeld, which is statedly a show about nothing. Rather, it is the Curse of Oak Island on the History Channel. I don't know how many of you guys have ever watched this little show before. Um, it's, uh, I don't know how many seasons I've watched so far, but basically, each show is an hour long, and it basically shows these people uh, making a big deal out of hoping to find treasure on this place called Oak Island. And instead of ever finding treasure, they just continue to find bits and pieces of wood and an occasional rusty button, but I keep tuning in anyway. <laughs> While I was watching just this last week, there was a commercial for, for all of the upcoming Christmas programming. Frosty the Snowman, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Home Alone, The Grinch, Polar Express, Elf. The list went on and on, but there was nothing about the one for whom Christmas is named. And honestly, even in the church, it's all too easy for us to take our eyes off of Jesus. The wise men sometimes take center stage. So can the shepherds. Sometimes it's Mary. Sometimes it's Joseph. It can be the children's Christmas program. It can be the Advent wreath. It can be Advent candles. It can be all the wonderful carols. All those things can actually, ironically, distract us from Jesus. Within the church, there's always a temptation to focus on behavior modification instead of upon focusing on our Savior. We can hear sermons entitled, Seven Steps to a Better Marriage, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, Godly Friendship, all those are fine and well, unless they're not about Jesus. Advent, and specifically in this passage, Zechariah reminds us that the gospel is good news, not good advice. Let me say that one more time. The gospel is good news, not good advice. The good news of Advent is that Jesus came to set us free. Jesus came to reconcile us to God and to one another. He came to be who we couldn't be. He came to do what we couldn't do. Our salvation, our freedom, our true humanity, and ultimately, all of those things are ultimately found not in our effort and not in our intent, but rather all that we need and all that we long and hope for are found in Jesus, our Savior. John the Baptist knew that. He knew that his job was to go before Jesus like an offensive lineman protecting the quarterback. He knew that his job was to prepare the way for him, to point people to Jesus. In fact, in the Gospel of John, we read of John the Baptist two different times, pointing his own disciples away from himself and to Jesus. Once he told them, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look over there. Look at him. Later on, some of John's well-intentioned followers lamented that so many people were leaving John the Baptist and instead turning to Jesus, to which John famously responded, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. He must become greater. I must become less. That's my job today as well. It's the music team's job. It's Jeff's job. It's the job of the tech folks. It's the job of the people working in children's ministry today. In this moment of history, there are more distractions than ever before. In this Advent season, it is my honor to invite you, to remind you to look upon Jesus, to place your hope upon him 
to take your doubts and your needs and your longings to Jesus because He cares for you. Let's take one moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this season of constant reminders, reminders that um, you know our doubt and that you actually invite us to share our doubts with you. Father, you don't turn us away, but rather you welcome those doubts, just like you welcomed doubting Thomas. Father, we thank you for the reminder this season of our truest need, Father, that it's actually this, this brokenness, that corruption, this corruption that exists within us, Father, whereby we find our identity and security in these really good things you've given us instead of finding that identity and security in you, Father. And then finally, we thank you that this season is a moment where we're jarred out of Instagram and off of Facebook and YouTube into a reminder that we ultimately need to gaze upon your son, Jesus, who came in order to set us free, to save us, to rescue humanity. Father, I pray today and throughout these next few weeks of Advent that our hope would ultimately be found in your son, Jesus. In his name we pray.